Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day, folks. Welcome to the show. And I'm glad to say Mike is getting all swashbuckling on us today. Yes, but I'm going to be talking about the real D'Artagnan. Oh, D'Artagnan and the Three Musketeers. Excellent. Yes, mate. But like I said, this is the real D'Artagnan. Right. So we're not talking about the Alexander Dumas novel, then, The Three Musketeers. Yes and no. You see, Dumas' The Three Musketeers first published over a period of 1844 to 1845. There have been over 60 film versions, cartoons, television adaptations, and one particularly average stage show with me as Planche, the manservant. <laughs> oh, mate, oh, you were the Roy Kinnear figure. Yes, I was the Roy Kinnear figure, <laughs> mate, but here's the good thing about being Planche. I didn't have to stay behind after rehearsals for sword fighting classes. <laughs> so where were you, Mikey? Well, mate, it was an outdoor production. It ended up in Fort Scratchley in Newcastle, which is a great spot, but we did start in the grounds of Nelson Bay Public School and our opening audience was three kids and a Labrador and the Labrador wandered off. <laughs> but I've got to admit, Dumas is a fascinating character. Now, his father had been born in Haiti, Mm. the son of a French nobleman and his wife, an Afro-Caribbean slave known as Marie Sassette Dumas. Right. So were they married? Yeah, they were married. And in fact, when his father comes back to France as a young boy, young Thomas Alexander, his father, Dumas' grandfather, and this is really creepy, he has him legally freed. Wow. Because he's the son of a slave. Yeah. So young Thomas Alexander, he is part of the French elite. He attends military school. He joins the army. And look, as an adult, he uses his mother's maiden name, hence we get the surname Demar, mm. and he rises through the ranks to become a general by the tender age of 31, mm. the first soldier of Afro-Antilles origin to reach that rank. Oh, good on him. Yes, but sadly he dies. And he dies when Dumas, Alexander, our writer, is around about four years of age, mm. leaves the family almost penniless, but it's a noble family. So fortunately, through scholarly friends as a child, and apparently a bit of a gift for penmanship, mm. young Dumas makes a living as a clerk and becomes an avid reader and regularly attends the theatres of Paris. Right. Now, I mentioned his uppity-class friends. Well, he's encouraged by these friends, particularly one of them, a wealthy and educated guy called Adolphe Ribbing de Louvain. Mm. Actually, he wanted to be Dumas' collaborator, but that sort of fell by the wayside. Anyway, Alexander Dumas, he starts writing plays. And eventually, his historical play, Henry III and His Court, mm. was performed by the prestigious Comedy Francais. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, that, that goes back to Moliere. That is one of the big theatre troops in France. He becomes, Dumas becomes an overnight success. And he becomes the toast of Paris. On the back of this production, he got a contract to write historical fiction in the Sunday edition of La Presse. Oh, right, yeah, because that's... 
very much a 19th century tradition, isn't it, with the newspapers serialising, a bit like Dickens did in London. And that's how come The Three Musketeers gets released over 1844 to 1845. Yes. But it's not just that. He writes The Three Musketeers, its sequel 20 years later, a second sequel, Le Comte de Boulogne, The Count of Monte Cristo. Mm. These all get pumped out in a frantic creative period of just over 12 months. Wow. Now, Dumas' seminal work, The Three Musketeers, it's inspired by a 17th century book entitled Memoirs de D'Artagnan by, here we go. By the way, folks, there's going to be a lot of French names in this episode, and as you all know, this is not my strong point, so bear with me. Gatien de Cortes de Sandres. <laughs> so hang on, that book by de Sandres, the, the memoirs, is that fiction or is it fact? Here's the strange thing. Dumas actually thought Cortes's book was fiction, mm. but when he writes The Three Musketeers, when Dumas writes it, mm. In the introduction, he actually refers to it as an historical text. Not that he thinks it's historical, he just doesn't want to be accused of plagiarism. Ah, right. And we know that he had a copy of the book because Dumas actually checked Cortez's book out of the Marseille Library. And here's the thing, Paul, he never returned it. <laughs> but apparently, unreturned library books was not Dumas' only transgressions. Right. <laughs> he had, well, I'm going to say numerous affairs. Well, over 40 is pretty numerous, as well as maybe four, even eight illegitimate children. Well, that's right, isn't it? Because he did have something of a reputation at the time, didn't he, old Dumas? Wasn't he also a member of that famous Club de Hashishans when all those Parisian nobles would gather each month to smoke pot? Yes, he would pass the duchy on the left-hand side. <laughs> but anyway, back to the musketeers. So who exactly were they? Mm. See, it all starts in 1600 when Henry IV of France starts arming a light cavalry unit with, and you're going to have to help me here, mate, arquebuses? Yeah, arquebuses, that's right. They're those long-barrelled weapons, aren't they, that were invented back in the 15th century in Spain, and they're now becoming this new technology because they're the first weapon to feature a matchlock, and that's replaced the old technology of actually using your own hand to light the flashbang. And obviously this was a major advantage from all its other predecessors, you know, like the worryingly named hand cannon. <laughs> yeah, always a bit scary, the hand cannon. Now, the musketeers proper, they're created in 1622 by Louis XIII, mm. you know, Louis XIV's father. Now, they're part of a junior military branch of the royal household. But the reason why this unit becomes so famous is that this is the first regiment to adopt what in many ways is the Archibus 2.0, what would soon be known all across Europe as the musket. Mm. It's like the stealth bomber of its day. Now, having said that, they are often mistakenly described as the king's bodyguards. It's a role actually performed by the garde de corps and the centruises. Am I yes. saying that right? Yes. Well, close enough for jazz. However, there are a few characteristics of the musketeers that are pretty much in line with Dumas' portrayal. Mm. They were a mounted regiment and they fought with both swords and muskets. Hence the name musketeer, right? Exactly. But here's the thing, mate. They took in the lower end of upper-class young men of the French nobility, mm -hmm. as well as the younger sons from more noble families. And, of course, your more ambitious moneyed commoners. And that's important, isn't it, Mikey? Because you do at this stage have a professional soldier class emerging, but to be a musketeer it wasn't really a free ride for your family, you had to pay for your upkeep. Yeah, sure, you got your musket, but lodgings, your horses, your swords, and obviously your servant, you had to pay for that yourself. And I was that servant. I was Ponche. <laughs> the other thing you did need was a letter of recommendation. But for a young man on the make, being a musketeer was a great way of placing yourself in the service of the king. Mm. And when I say young men, many of these musketeers were actually just you know, older teenagers. And because of this, they quickly established a reputation as both brave, if a tad impetuous, 
as well as well having a bit of a youthful swagger <laughs> that gave them a rowdy and somewhat bawdy reputation. Sure. This also cemented a deep sense of esprit de corps. Yes, and no doubt, as much as it pays me as an Englishman to say it, no doubt they're pretty good at it. Very good indeed, I'm afraid to say, mate. These bad boys, the musketeers, soon became royal favourites. They were dashing figures at court. They're extremely popular with everyone, except in... Well, here's the bit you've been waiting for. Uh, of course, Cardinal, Cardinal Richelieu. Richelieu decided that he needed his own bodyguards, and he created his own group of musketeers, and one of the great rivalries in literal history and literary history was born. Right. So with Richelieu's death in 1642, the Cardinal's musketeers were inherited by the equally scheming replacement, Cardinal Mazarin. Mazarin, yes. yes that was the one we mentioned in the Sun King episode. Going forward, when Mazarin dies in 1661, Louis XIV amalgamated both companies, much to the mutual disgust of both the King's Company and the Cardinal's Company. The former became popularly known as the Grey Musketeers right. for their choice of riding grey horses. Mm-hmm. Whereas what had been the Cardinal's Musketeers, well, they chose black horses mm-hmm. and they were called the Black Musketeers, mm-hmm. which makes things so easy if you're casting goodies and baddies in a movie. All right, so we're in 17th century France. We're with the Three Musketeers. But as Mikey said, it is all based on a true story. And in fact true historical figures, right down to D'Artagnan himself. Is that right, Mikey? Yes, mate. And in fact, D'Artagnan, we know, was born somewhere, the real D'Artagnan, was born somewhere around 1613, 1615. Mm-hmm. And his full name was, give me a second here, Charles Augier de Bats de Casamour, Sieur D'Artagnan. Okay. Uh, close enough? Yeah. That- okay. It was good. Okay, okay, I'm happy with that. And he was born in the Chateau de Castlemore in Lupiac, Gascony. Right. Now, he's one of seven children. His elder two brothers were also in the military. Mm-hmm. His younger brother became an abbot, which was a bit of a tradition at the time. Yes. And his three sisters all married very well, increasing the family's wealth and prestige. So he takes his name from the Sieur de D'Artagnan, which was most probably property owned on his mother's side of the family. Mm. Now, D'Artagnan, he joins the guards as a young man in the mid-1630s, and he he distinguishes himself in the Franco-Spanish Wars. Mm. In fact, he took part in several major battles and sieges of this conflict. And here's the thing, he was most probably present at the Siege of Arras in 1640. Mm -hmm. Now, I mention this because, coincidentally, another great figure from French literature, the novelist and playwright Cyrano de Bergerac, was also at the Siege of Arras. Oh, right. And we know about Cyrano because he was wounded in the neck. Now, Cyrano, like D'Artagnan, was another real-life figure that would find immortality in a romanticised version of their life story. In 1897, Edmund Rostand writes the play, Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah, yeah. It's been adapted and retold many, many times over the past 130 years, including the great 80s remake. Oh, Steve Martin, yes. And most recently, there's a Broadway production with Daniel Craig playing Cyrano. Mm. Anyway, after this, D'Artagnan joins the Musketeers, and he does so with the aid of his new patron, Cardinal Mazarin. Right. Let's not forget, after the death of Richelieu and Louis XIII, Mazarin was the most powerful man in France. Mm. Because he's acting as regent to the five-year-old Louis XIV, alongside Louis's cunning mother. Oh, yeah, Anne of Austria. Yes, mate, but that's not the only proper bit of history I've got for you. You see, going back to Dumas' novel, going back to the supposed made-up Three Musketeers, we actually have army records to show that D'Artagnan... When D'Artagnan joins... Already in the regiment, you've got a guy called Armand de Selegui de Athos de Hauteville. 
Athos, Isaac de Porto. Oh, Porthos. And Henry de Amatis. Oh, Aramis. Oh, mate, here's a quick note. When we were doing that version of The Three Musketeers back in the 80s, yeah. every time the actor who played Aramis would walk on stage, we'd all go, Aramis. It was a very popular aftershave. <laughs> Look, it was the 80s. We thought it was funny. But okay. back, back to D'Artagnan. He joins the Musketeers with Mazarin's patronage in 1644. Mm. Unfortunately, he leaves two years later when they're disbanded in 1646. Right. But here's the thing. He manages to stay a loyal servant to both the Cardinal and the young monarch. Mm. In fact, he fights during the civil unrest that marred many of the early years of Louis' reign. Right. Quite often, mate, he's fighting on one side for Louis, but even when Mazarin was exiled, he acted as the Cardinal's go-between in 1651. Ah. As a fighter, his reputation grew so much that by the age of 40, he's become a captain in the guards. Mm. When the Musketeers are reformed in 1657, look, I know it's confusing, they do get broken up and reformed quite a bit over the centuries. Yes. But when he comes back in 1657, he returns in the role of sub-lieutenant. Mm-hmm. After a year, this becomes captain-lieutenant, and basically the day-to-day command of the musketeers falls to D'Artagnan. Right. Now, during this time, this is contrary to the novel, he actually gets married. Oh. He gets married to a woman called Charlotte Anne de Chancelet. Mm-hmm. She's the Baron de Saint-Croix. And he has two sons with her in 1660 and 1661, and this is where it gets really weird. They're both called Louis. <laughs> and this is because, well, King Louis has become godfather to the first one, mm-hmm. and the Dauphin, another Louis, has become godfather to the second one. Right. Once again, this is another huge indicator of D'Artagnan's loyalty to the king. Sadly, the marriage didn't last. Apparently, he was away from home a lot. Mm. But it does show how important he was to Louis, Louis was to him, and this would only grow stronger over the years. His most prominent act of service occurs in 1661, you know, the year his second son is born. Let's not forget she was annoyed with him being away from home a lot. But in 1661, he becomes the jailer to Louis XIV's former superintendent of finances, Nicolas Fouquet. Ah, Nicolas Fouquet, of course. It's East Artanian who arrests Fouquet on charges of embezzlement and high treason. Mm. Look, it can be argued that Fouquet was more of a fall guy for years of gross financial mismanagement and corruption. But it has to be said, Fouquet's own personal extravagances didn't really help his case. His ostentatious shadow was a shimmering edifice to his extravagance. Mm. Made to build it, he purchased and demolished three villages, which along with other construction costs was paid for by Fouquet with corrupt lending practices as Mm. well as extortion Mm. and even a bit of piracy on the side. Do you remember our piracy episode we talked about the Corsairs? Yes. He had a finger in that pie as well. Look, even after construction, the shadow required a small army of workers for the maintenance of its buildings and grounds. I should point out, these workers were mostly the displaced villagers that he'd previously evicted. Ouch. It soon becomes a focus for feasts, spectacles, the arts and theatre. At its inauguration, there was a play freshly written by Moliere, Mm. as well as dining and fireworks, all organised by the greatest party planner of his age, Francois Vettel. Okay, so this is all Fouquet we're talking about, Louis XIV, chief minister, the man in charge of the royal purse strings, and he's helping himself to a cut as he goes along. That's right, mate. And this time he's gone too far. Even though Fouquet had planned not only the event to please Louis, he also constructed a large section of the palace to house the king, its extravagance played straight into the hands of Louis' other advisor, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, Ah. who'd already been laying the groundwork for Fouquet's downfall. Okay. 
Fouquet was arrested the next day. And look, as Voltaire later observed, Fouquet had flown a little too close to the Sun King. Mm. This, this is what Voltaire says. On the 17th of August, at six in the evening, Fouquet was the King of France. At two in the morning, he was nobody. And it's D'Artagnan who makes that arrest. And not surprising as well, Colbert gets Fouquet's job. Sure. Louis gets 120 of his luxurious tapestries, and he immediately hires Fouquet's team, the architect, the landscaper, and the interior designer and painter, mm. to get started on, on a little project that would become known as Versailles. Oh, so does that spell the end for D'Artagnan as well? No, mate, no, he's still in the king's graces. In fact, in 1671, D'Artagnan and his musketeers do another personal job for Louis. They arrest the Duc de Luzon. See, this guy had the effrontery to marry the Duchess of Montpensier, who was Louis's cousin. Louis wasn't happy about it. Mm -hmm. They have him whisked over to the Alps and they dump him in the mountain prison in Pignerol, Switzerland, mm -hmm. where this guy, de Luzon, actually had rooms directly below the exile 4K in what was known as the Angel Tower. Right. And this act of loyalty must have been greatly appreciated by the king. Because after this mission, he made D'Artagnan the governor of Lille right. in, in 1672. However, this cushy gig only lasted a year. And, and in 1673, he was back with his regiment of musketeers taking on the Dutch. And with the aid of more than a few of their allied English soldiers, laying siege to the Dutch city of Maastricht. By the 10th of June, Louis XIV and his army have surrounded the city of Maastricht. And look, it, it, it's odd for young and old. The French had four battalions, eight squadrons of the King's Horse, 300 grenadiers, the first company of the musketeers led by none other than our man D'Artagnan. Now, things really heat up on the 19th of June when the French artillery laid into the town's fortification and this barrage continued for five days straight. Mm. After this barrage, D'Artagnan leads the charge on sort of like a half-moon fortification that protected the Tongres Gate, one of the main gates to the city. He takes that fortification and he plants the fleur de on the parapet. Mm. Job done. Excellent. Now, see, his English ally, the Duke of Monmouth, well, he decides, well, we're here now. He's going to lead his troops out onto the open ground that lay between the half-moon fortification and the Tongres Gate. Mm. Despite his own misgivings, D'Artagnan, well, he thinks, well, he's gone, I better go. He follows the Duke, leads his musketeers into what is basically a suicide charge. And it's in this charge that D'Artagnan, the musketeer, was shot. Ah, musketeer, don't tell me he's shot by an enemy musket. Exactly, mate. In fact, what we have is a contemporaneous description of what happens. It was on this occasion that Monsignor d'Artagnan was killed. The intensity of musket fire was such that even a hail could not fall more abundantly. Two musketeers trying to pick up Monsieur d'Artagnan were killed at his side, and two others who had taken their place and given themselves the same duty were killed in the same, next to their captain, without even having time to pick themselves up. This battle went on for five hours, in the light of the day and out in the open. And one could almost say, and the combat ceased due to the lack of combatants. The surviving musketeers, mate, they were devastated to hear the loss of their leader. Mm. And let's not forget, four people had lost their lives trying to retrieve his dead body, yep. as was the king. Later that night, he wrote to his wife, Maria Theresa, Madame, I have lost D'Artagnan, in whom I had the utmost confidence and who merited it on all occasions. <laughs> 
All right, so Mikey's been talking about the three musketeers and how the real Dogtanian died. So, of course, we're talking the 17th century and the French army and French politics. And one of the things that you said struck you most, Mike, is just why during this period is France almost always at war? Yes, mate, they're at war for almost the entire century. Well, that's right, Mikey. Yeah, kicking off with the Thirty Years' War, isn't it, back in 1618 to 1648. Now... Primarily, that's supposed to be a war between the Holy Roman Emperor and the breakaway states in the Low Countries. But increasingly, France is sucked into that. And, you know, they pretend to be standing on the sidelines. No one really buys it. And essentially, the whole conflict morphs into the much more blatant Franco-Spanish War, which again goes on for another 30 years, you know, from about 1635 to 1659. Yeah, but why? Right, well, often these are called the wars of religion. And religion does play its part. But really, it's always going to come down to politics and economics between Europe's main two superpowers. France and Spain. That's right. Because you've got to remember, Mikey, at this stage, England, it's still only a bit player. You know, we, we Brits like to think that the Tudors and the Stuarts put us on the map. But in European terms, we're still tiny and would remain so, really, until the proper wealth comes in from the colonies from North America and the Caribbean. But that's, you know, 50 or 100 years down the line, Mike. And now, in the middle of the 17th century, England, of course, has got the Civil War. It's in a complete mess. And the English kings and queens, they're very much paupers in comparison to their continental rivals. You know, you've already got the Portuguese with their big money coming from Africa and India and China and the East Indies and all that exploration. The Spanish, too, even if it has been largely by accident, they've got all their gold and silver coming in from the Americas. And then you've got the French. But hang on, at this stage, the French don't really have that many colonies, so well, what, what have they got? Well, Mikey, like a lot of economics, it all comes down to numbers. And the most important numbers for a nation back in the 17th century was your population. You see, France had 18 million inhabitants at this time, you know, whereas England, it only had 5 to 6 million. And of course, you know, there's no Germany, there's no Italy, even the Holy Roman Emperor, it would lay claim to similar numbers, but really the Habsburgs, you know, rulers like Ferdinand II... All he really had was Spain and a few old family lands based in Austria. So really, he only had about 8 million people. So hang on, so you got France with 18 million people with one monarch. That makes them a really heavy hitter. The biggest hitter, Mikey, by far. But the problem is with that, of course, is that your size of population also means your number of mouths to feed. And one set of mouths to feed in particular, soldiers' mouths. You see, during this whole period, the 16th, 17th centuries, you have what a lot of historians refer to as a military revolution because you've got a whole new set of tactics coming in that completely change the nature of warfare. You know, no longer is it all about the individual prowess. Now that's being supplanted by units and formations. And of course, technology like your man D'Artagnan's muskets. So military commanders, they're looking to exploit the advantages these superior weapons afford. And they start adopting various tactics, but particularly the linear square, because these squares allow successive lines of musketeers to load, fire and reload. Now, look, you know, I'm not saying they completely take over. They've still got soldiers with pikes to protect against the cavalry. But the very nature of military warfare is changing. The thing is, though, Mikey, you know, more complex tactics, they need discipline, they need coordination. And soon it's pretty obvious that the only way you're going to achieve this is by having a professional standing army rather than just, you know, calling up volunteers as and when you need them. And of course, to create a standing army, you need training establishments and you need a professional officer class, you know, rather than just your nobles who can take command. 
So suddenly you've got all these military schools popping up over Europe and they're very much led by the military training academies set up by the French, in particular the Duke de Boulogne, who's a general in the French Royal Army, and he sets up the training academy of Sedan in 1606. Now, look, we should also give a mention here to Maurice of Nassau. He's the leader of the Low Countries in the rebellion against the Holy Roman Emperor because he also plays a big part in the developing of these new tactics, as do the Brits, of course, you know, with Cromwell's new model army. But it is the French who take it to the greatest extent and it's the French who create Europe's largest standalone fighting force. And of course, lots of soldiers means lots of wars. Well, that's exactly it, Mikey, because of course, a permanent force, yes, sure, that leads to greater professionalism in the military. But, you know, year-round training, permanent barracks, regular pay, career models for officers, this all takes money. And to fund it, you've either got to raise taxes at home. Which is never popular. (laughs) Yeah, or you can establish colonies abroad and try and rinse them for all their worth. Or you go back to the age-old number of going to war with your neighbours, defeating them and making them stump up the cash instead. And like I said, numbers are still the key to all this. And in terms of size of armies, France becomes the number one. You know, they've got something like 330 to 360,000 full-time professional troops by the end of the 17th century. And to give you an idea, Mikey, Cromwell's new model army, that was more like 50 or 60,000. So throughout this time of your musketeers, you know, France under kings like Louis XIV, it's happy to throw its weight around. You've got the Franco-Spanish War that you mentioned, you've got the Portuguese Restoration Wars, you then get the Franco-Dutch Wars in the 1670s, and of course the Nine Years' War from 1688 to 1697. And all because of this idea that if you have never-ending campaigns and hopefully never-ending victories, so you'll be able to feed the never-ending demands of an ever-growing army. So this whole new revolution of the military, it almost becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, that's right, Mikey. In fact, numbers continue to be considered probably the most important factor right up until World War I. Because even then, when the war broke out, the British generals, they drew up all their battle plans centred around the sheer weight of numbers that they knew they would get from their allies, the French. Because you see, in 1914, Mikey, France has a standing army of over 4 million troops compared to Britain with less than 1 million. Although, of course, all those tactics really achieved was the mass stalemate that became known as the Western Front. Until the Americans turned up in 1917 and brought donuts. And I think we've done an episode about that. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right. And always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. So next week, folks, pack your bags, because Paul's taking us globetrotting all over the world, and it's all in pursuit of some mythical creature. A mythical creature called the Green Man. (laughs) 